Hi, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Jonathan Browson. Uh, Jonathan is a chess grandmaster, philosopher, speaker, writer, uh, co-founder of Perspectiva, uh, which, uh, according to its website, defines itself as, quote, an urgent 100-year project to improve the relationships between systems, souls, and society in theory and practice. Uh, Perspectiva also published this book, um, Dispatches from a Time Between Worlds, and I believe in the American edition, uh, the entirety of the word metamodernity is uh, on the cover, So, um, which is, I consider one of the most important um, books on dealing with metamodernity and metamodernism out there. A prolific writer, um, incredible mind, and uh, yeah, I figured we could just get into it, the whole gamut. Um, I mean, you know, nominally speaking, uh, the podcast is Metamodern Spirituality. You've written on spirituality at some length. You have a book called Spiritualize. Um, and I make mention of that actually in my uh, YouTube uh, after postmodernism series that I did uh, referring to your involvement with Metamodern Spirituality. Um, but, you know, besides the nexus of spirituality and, and metamodernity, um, there's a, a number of topics we could explore. Uh, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to just kind of digging in and see what comes up. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time and, um, yeah, coming on. It's a pleasure. Can, can I ask, just because it's salient, um, are you outside at the moment? It looks like you're this kind of a wooden background uh, that you could be at the beach even. I am inside, but these are some, like, drying herbs. Um Sort, yeah. of gently, sort of gently disconcerting. It's sort of, I like it, but I'm a, bit, I'm a bit sort of confused by it as well. That that basically summarizes my whole vibe, gently disconcerting. If I can just, you know, that's the sweet spot right there. Um, yeah, I live on a, a homestead uh, retreat center. And uh, so it has a very rustic, naturalistic vibe here. Um, and so I'm often surrounded by um, drying herbs and, and, uh, and a lot of flora. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm interested. Uh, I mean, one one potential way to just kind of open things up and 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 dig into some of the material here would be: is there a particular way, or are there ways of thinking about this um, this living in meta modernity in this time between worlds, and specifically what that looks like in terms of uh, our spiritual sensibilities, in terms of what spirituality itself means, which actually might be kind of a good word or a, a good word to try to define or throw by you for a definition, because, um, you know, it's often kind of bandied about as though we all uh, think we know what that means. But um, yeah, how, how do you think about spirituality and spiritualizing uh, life in meta modernity? What does that mean to you? Well, I think I was actually doing a project on metamodern spirituality without realizing that's what I was doing. And I was doing that for about three years, give or take. And the context was uh, public policy slash civil society slash public event program slash membership organization called the Royal Society of Arts in London. It's a beautiful Georgian building tucked behind the Strand. It's a lovely place to be. It's just very buzzy and lots of people coming in and out and I got very lucky that was my first job after playing chess professionally and I sort of landed on my feet somehow um initially took a job that wasn't anything to do with spirituality apparently it was called uh the connected communities pro program and my job was to do social network analysis and to figure out how people were connected in deprived communities so it began quite let's see um, well, it began quite sociological in a sense. And then uh, there was a sort of lateral shift to something called the Social Brain Project, 
which was a bit mm-hmm. more about the the fundamental assumptions we make about human beings and how they're baked into public policy models and how we end up with governments and policy programs that are um you know sort of defined by a certain view of the human being that is 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 maybe not helpful probably not accurate uh and certainly not inspiring and that was something like homo economicus or rational man or a view of human beings as sort of profit maximizing individual agents working mostly through their minds rather than their bodies or their milieus um and over a period of time you know, begin to understand humans are much more automatic and habitual they're sort of not just creatures of habit but habit forming creatures we're not just somehow embodied accidentally but our cognition is embodied and uh, you know much of what we do arises emotionally before it arises cognitively and you begin to understand also that we're deeply social and that's not just a kind of cute party affectation to say how lovely we'll all be social together it's actually you know how we are as creatures it's how we think how we feel how we operate is socialized so based on that when i began to work on that project i got interested in the limits of public conversation now it's somewhat different in the us i think because they're we're a little bit further down the secularization road here although it's a bumpy road with twists and turns and going backwards sometimes and forwards other times and what do those terms even mean right um but something about um the feeling that you'd get through a conversation in this kind of context which I think in terms of your terminology would be something like liberal postmodern context. Mm. And it would be, um, you could speak about social isolation, but what not really what loneliness feels like and the tragedy of loneliness and the existential horror of loneliness or even loneliness as an existential predicament to be alone in the universe, not merely to lack neighbors and colleagues and friends. Um, you could speak about sort of happiness maybe as a critique of GDP as the main measure of societal flourishing, but well-being might be possible too, but you wouldn't really get into flourishing or eudaimonia or anything like, um, you know, a sort of spiritual fulfillment of the human being didn't really come into it. Um, And something similar would occur vis-a-vis when you're talking about new economic models and new economic thinking, people might go into, we need a model other than economic growth, but they wouldn't necessarily spell out what society was aiming for, if not that. And when they would, there was a kind of boundary, like a kind of invisible line beyond which you couldn't cross. And it was, I would say, somewhat metaphysical, um, but it was largely unconscious. Since you, you reach the boundaries of what sometimes called the social imaginary. And that's the context I was in. And this was going back to now, let's see, 2011, 12-ish, that kind of time. Uh, and that's what happened. I created a project called Spirituality, Tools of the Mind and the Social Brain. That was just the, the line we, al- we, al- we alighted on. But the reason that was interesting was it was in some ways going into the roots, sort of using the modernist frame, the scientific roots of the human being to allow, give you permission to go back in traditional terms to something more religious about a different view of i don't know reverence or unity i'm reminded of um this great saying by 
uh, I believe Gregory Bateson, who said um, the loss of aesthetic unity was a fundamental mistake. And by that, he means that when we lost the sort of traditional view of the world of God unifying all things, we never quite recovered from that fragmentation at some level. So there was a kind of going from a postmodern, how do we get to fundamental matters, hoping science would be some kind of axiom. But really, it wasn't so much the axiom. It was more that that gave you permission to go into the pre-scientific worldview and then bring it all back into something like, and now what do we do, given our various wicked problems that we were facing at the time? That's what I was up to. And it led to this, this led to a previous version of this book, um, which is the second edition I've got here. And it wasn't, it was more like a report the first time around it was by the same title, Spiritualize. And I did it because I loved it. You know, I did it because it was just where I was at the time, but I was blown away by the reception. Um, and it was as if people were just so hungry to talk about this. It was as if the, the permission was granted to speak of what they were didn't feel was about to be discussed. Um, and it went beyond, and you'll come back to your question about defining spiritual and spirituality. Um, but there was something about the process of doing this that suddenly civil servants would come who were otherwise very professionalized and careful with their language would suddenly say, yes, I felt this way for a long time. We need to speak. And the fact that it was happening at the RSA was important because the nature of the institution, it's quite respected, quite establishment and quite secular in its own way too. You know, it's a liberal enlightenment kind of place. Um, yeah, that was the kind of, let's say, narrative context in which this arises. So you asked the question, how did I define spirituality? So when you say spirituality, as a, it has a noun-like quality. It's, it's as if it's like tables, chairs, houses, cars, and spirituality. People go looking for it as an object in the world um, that can be sensed, heard, or felt, or whatever. And that's not the case. Um, you're speaking of something interior, something between, something beyond, and therefore, the, the composite noun spirituality risks losing that sense of what it is. Um, so over, over a period of time, I realized what I was talking about was a sensibility. And this comes back to the metamodern thing again, right? Because it's often called a sensibility. And I was trying to get at what is a spiritual sensibility? What is it for somebody to have a spiritual sensibility? And it's something about an, ori an orientation to life in its fullness. Um and it's and you could say vis-a-vis -vis Tillich, it's ultimate concern. Mm -hmm. But I, I did actually take some care to actually um, word this. So let me just read it out, if you don't mind. Sure. Say here, I think of spiritual sensibility as a disposition towards reality, characterized by concern for the fullness of life and experienced through simultaneous intimations of aliveness, goodness, understanding, and meaning. Those glimpses of wholeness and integration have a texture that is at once emotional, ethical, epistemic, and existential. The feeling of being alive, the conviction that something matters, the intuition that the world makes sense, and the experience that life is meaningful, respectively. More substantively, as indicated in part three of this book, cultivating spiritual sensibility is about deepening our engagement with questions of being, i.e. death, belonging, particularly love, becoming the self, the soul, and beyond this, particularly the soul, the, the idea of um, soul is not a question we can come to, but um, I, I distinguish between self and soul in the project. So love, death, self and soul was a way into the project for people on the outside, because they're all terms that are more or less familiar. Um, yeah. So that ought to do 
for a first answer, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. No, that's helpful. I mean, so one of the things I just got uh, from 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 reading through uh, that work a little bit was that, yeah, I mean, that's you're you're trying to juggle a lot there uh, because you're trying to consider all the possible um, ways that the a word like spiritual or spirituality or spiritualizing uh, can can speak to, yeah, that sensibility that you're naming, um, maybe in a way that, that isn't content specific, but, uh, orientation or disposition, I think is a word that you use. Um, and I mean, certainly to your point around definition, right. There's that, there's always that way in which a definition is going to, uh, exclude and put an end and a demarcation around something that then is kind of essentially closing something off. And yet at the same time, those closures are also openings by which we're yeah. able to yeah. make sense. And, right. and, and yeah, they're, they're creative constraints and, right. and they're, they're valuable. It's just important that when you do the, the, the reason for the refrain is that there are many concepts. I mean, my PhD was on the concept of wisdom, right? So there's a whole mm. chapter called Indefinitely Defining Wisdom, uh, where I deal with the whole notion of what it is to define something and, and why we do it and why we need it and so forth. And there are some concepts who, and it's the soul is one of these, that um, it gets to the point where if you can define it, you've kind of missed the point mm. because its very nature is meant to disarm you of that kind of conceptual um safety blanket if you like it's meant to leave you disarmed and kind of open yeah um well but 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 at the same time i mean the reason why just to i, I wouldn't i not even push back but just to to yes and some of this though there's there are ways in which uh sometimes there's there's unhelpful or even dangerous equivocation around things right where if we can't begin to um get a sense of what it is that we're referring to and what is sort of falling into yeah. our, our, um, our Ken, uh, th- it, 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 it forecloses other affordances. I don't know, uh, just to put one, one term to it. And so one of the things that I find interesting about trying to define a word like this is that, um, there's something about traditional religion that I think we're, we're very familiar with when we see it, we know it, you know, it's like, there's someone praying and there's, there's, yeah. there's like a, a scriptural element. And, you know, uh, we maybe know people or maybe we are ourselves, someone who grew up in a, in a traditional religious context and all that. And there's a whole, there's a whole thing there that it's sort of like, yes, that's religion. We get that. And I think that that is also a lot of the stuff that is is excluded from the public discourse and the way that you were talking about uh, yeah. that's kind of precisely what, what in a kind of polite way, we're not going to talk about because that's sort of personal and let's not go there. Um, and then spirituality though, is, is a kind of more amorphous, a bit more of a wiggly word that in some ways it seems tries to uh, speak to some of that phenomena while also speaking to other phenomena that are in some ways decidedly non or anti-religious even, and yet still speaking to this kind of sensibility. And so I find trying to, uh, if not pin that down, which I, I agree is sort of impossible, but just kind of zero in on what is that? Like, what, what are these things that both connect and yet divide religious from spiritual folks, spiritual from uh, secular or spiritual from atheistic folks? Um, and I feel like that can be generative and sort of it getting a sense of, you know, because the last thing I'll say about that is that um, 
what you were talking about earlier about the RSA project you were working on and the, the different groups that you were dealing with is like, there seemed to be something missing, that there was a there was an elephant in the room that people kind of agreed, you know, uh, not to speak about, <laughs> right? If we're going to kind of do um, public discourse and, and, and have public space right. and do all that sort of thing, right? And yet there's something so important. It's issues of like ultimate concern are the things that we're not going to address, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I feel like part of this is about opening that up and trying to see, um, yeah, what it what those things are. And if we're not if, if we're leaving that out, it seems like we're leaving out something really important, both from a uh, from a kind of social standpoint, but also from a kind of political and um, policy standpoint of like, what kind of society do we want to live in? What kind of institutions are we are we setting up? And if we're not dealing with the whole person and we're actually leaving out the sort of gaping void of like where all the most important stuff kind of, uh, mm. you know, come together, then. Uh, kind of no wonder that we live in in societies that seem to be unfulfilling or vapid or superficial or whatever. Uh, those are just a couple of thoughts, but it seems like you have some thoughts to that stuff too. So go for it. Well, well, yeah. I mean, it's interesting you speak about the elephant in the room because you know, arguably, the elephant in the room is God, right? And um, who knew God was an elephant, right? But um, and it's funny. Greg Enriquez, actually. <laughs> right. But there's hundreds. Yeah, that's right. But there's, there's just going to say there's hundreds of elephant metaphors out there but yeah the the g-bomb is how my friend elizabeth oldfield called it back then what's interesting about that is back in 20 forget the exact year now i think it was 2012 or first event or maybe 2011 uh she was on stage and she was the director of theos or christian think tank in london and she was very supportive of this project great let's all talk about spirituality but she was one of these religious diplomats like okay Yes, the spiritual, but how does it work? We know how it works. We've got our traditions, we've got our scriptures, we've got our practices, we've got our communities, we've got our commitments. Uh, what do you got? You know, you got good vibes? Like what, what what's going on? Um, so in the public lecture, she spoke about, I'm just going to drop the G-bomb. And it was really funny at the time. It was like, I'm going to bring God into the room. Back then, it felt like very subversive, not exactly ridiculous, but... Um, certainly countercultural, cultural mm. um, but now actually 10 or so years later it doesn't feel quite so shocking to mention god in a public conversation where i'm at um and i think something interesting happened there for me in the project because i began doing it as a kind of spiritual but not religious project but over after a while i thought that was so ridiculous to be spiritual but not religious uh, as a as a turn of phrase, if nothing else, because if you think about that, you know, it's like being uh, something like a doctor but not medical, or a teacher but not educational, or something like that. Um, and um, I began to get more sympathetic towards religion. Actually, I thinking I began thinking it was sort of it's that's all in the past. Now we need the future and a new religion. But through meeting lots of religious people and noticing that their lives were no less full, they didn't seem deluded. They actually seemed in some ways better rounded and, and more wholehearted about their lives than many others. And I suddenly thought, what do I have to trade intellectually to be like them? You know, what what's the uh, what's the trade-off in a sense? Like, could I get to the point where I believed in God? Could I 
could it be the god of the cross and not just the god of you know mathematics um and i'm still there i'm still on that kind of journey i suppose um but i'm much much more sympathetic to religious claims and the religious view of the world i begin to understand that the liberal secular view is every bit as much a worldview as a for example the christian worldview you know it's 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 as laden with values and assumptions and metaphysics it's just that we help ourselves to the idea that it's somehow normal well but do, it's do, commitment. do you see any meaningful difference between how do i ask this question um i wonder if there if it's purely just a relativistic, oh, the the secular liberals have their own ideals and metaphysics and values, just as the traditional religious folks do. But that, that to me doesn't quite feel right because it, it seems also like the liberal secularists, to the degree that they're actually engaging in, you know, the insights of modernity, let's just say, um, are 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 working with a bit more in their toolkit for sense making and meaning making about reality. And in many ways it, it might be problematic, it might be problematizing of like, oh, things aren't as easy to believe now. Things aren't uh we can't just sort of assume what we used to. There's a naivete that's lost. But I don't for me personally, I don't see them as being um just sort of like, well, you know, uh interchangeably uh, sort of uh epistemically grounded worldviews if that makes sense right and so mm -hmm. i want i'd be curious if there's any part of you that goes there as well of, of seeing a content uh continuum of um of, of different levels of sort of ep epistemic justification grounding um and and what that means if so i mean do we right, right. do we yeah and and and, right. and just the last well, thing i'll say about that is that uh, one of you know to tip my hand i very much see the the issue or the challenge of spirituality in our current moment as being as hinging on these sorts of issues, because it's like, how do we do spirituality given all this other stuff, all the science, all the, you know, liberal values, all this stuff, right? Um, if we could just sort of jump back to the world in which traditional religions were kind of optimally operating, uh, mm -hmm. if, if, it, if such a kind of context ever existed, then that would be easier. But how do we make all that work? And can we, and should we, if, you know, if we've uh, sort of learned things about the world in which these uh, seem to be contradictory in some way. And so the, yeah. The, yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, this is why, why the question of metamodern spirituality presents itself. And that's why I speak about sort of what felt like a potential intellectual concession, but it doesn't have to be framed that way. I mean, there's no lack of intellectual heavyweights or, you know, signed, signed up to a completely religious worldview. Um. So you, you pose a very good question, and I and it's well taken. It's not necessarily equivalent, but here's why I think it's ultimately equivalent. And it's to do with meta theory, really. It's to do with how you justify things. So um, you might say, uh, if you have a, let's say, a liberal secular worldview, and you support, by that I mean, and that would include a sort of meta theory of something like naturalism, where you think that ultimately... Uh, or maybe materialism, and I know that philosophers distinguish between them, um, where you think that ultimately things would derive from matter, including consciousness, uh, including values, that there are emergent social and psychological processes, but ultimately they're reducible to biology, which in turn is reducible to physics and mathematics. Uh, and you can have a rich, full cultural world like that, and but you don't need God and you don't need um, 
to, to ground it in anything other than these emergent processes that we can understand rationally and scientifically and philosophically. And uh, that's roughly the worldview. And like you say, that comes with quite a lot of power because it's backed by methodologies and institutional frameworks that say this is a valid way of viewing the world. Um, the same might be said of a religious worldview, um, albeit it lacks, uh, it's not trying to show the same kind of thing. If, it, if it's, for example, saying there is something like a transcendent God, there is historical reason to believe there was a moment, again, I'm using the Christian reference because it's the one I know best, um, historical reasons to believe that, that God somehow um, uh, manifest in corporeal form as a human being, so as to bridge the metaphysical divide between us and the divine. Um, this has been recorded. It also indicates how we should live and therefore values are in some sense objective. And uh, they're also available for us to read and intuit uh, if we uh, um, relate to the world in the right way, surrender to some extent our, our, our egoic commitments. Um, and they would say that worldview uh, coheres just as well, and it's backed up aesthetically, and it's backed up ethically, and it's 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 sort of shown to be valid in its communal and emotional forms, right? Um, so different kinds of justification for very different kinds of worldview. Now, tacitly, the way we frame it is that the modern scientific worldview is more valid because it explains more, it's falsifiable in Popper's terms, um, but I honestly think that when you push that hard enough, you get to something like, um, you have to find consonance between your worldview, your meta theory, your methodology, and then ultimately a kind of consistency across your epistemology or ontology or your axiology, right? Which is by which I mean your idea of what is real, your idea of what can be known and, 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 and how it can be known. And your sense of where value comes from uh, and and you need to tell a coherent story and then the test is not just a correspondence theory of truth but some kind of coherence theory of truth is does this worldview stack up does it explain itself and i think you can say if you're sympathetic to a more theological worldview that if you listen long enough to these people and give them the benefit of the doubt there's plenty of coherence there um they, it doesn't have to be a god of the gaps. You know, it can be a full account of the world can be given. Um, I, I, but I, I want to, I do want to push back on that though, because and this is fascinating because I feel like this is this is um, a meaningful thing to try to tease out, um, and I do think it aims directly at what the significance is of an attempt at something like a meta modern spirituality or meta modern religion. Mm -hmm. um, and I say this as someone who who was reared in a traditionally religious context and then went on to uh, study the religion in a kind of a secular uh, anthropological historical context. So I was reared uh, traditional Christian, learned Greek and, and, and Latin and studied classics and then, you know, started doing the whole biblical studies thing and historical criticism and all that. And it was through that process specifically that I realized that where I had been coming from, I could no longer maintain. Um, right. If you look at the material evidence for the idea, for example, that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, let's just say, 
that that falls apart when you study uh, yeah. ev like evidentiary claims and the whole you know edifice now of historical criticism that's 200 years old. Um, and that, just to use that as an example, I feel like there are many instances in which certain uh, traditionally religious presumptions fall apart or break down upon critical scrutiny. In many ways, I, I interpret the kind of rise of modernity, broadly speaking, and the whole Enlightenment uh, project uh, leading up into you know the 20th century as as the unfolding of that process. And of course, then the, the Victorians, you know, losing, losing it and, and losing their faith and, and all that, right. It's been a long secularization process because of the grappling with this, um, this sort of new methodology and a new uh, standard of, um, of assessing the veracity and the, and, and the, 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 the fidelity of truth claims and whatnot. So, um, and as someone who in miniature has sort of experienced something like that process, um, there's a part of me that because of that doesn't want to then lead to a conclusion of, well, you know, you right. know, you do science, I worship Vishnu yeah, yeah. or Christ or what have you. And they're all one, right? There's something right. about this whole thing that we've been doing for the past 500 years that I feel like is valuable. And, right. uh, and then the question is, all right, if, if something like that is true, can we still do something like this spiritual thing after all that on the other side of that? And that's how I tend to conceive of something like right. a metamodern spirituality. But um, I don't know, would you disagree or, or, or try to and, nuance any of that? Well, I don't, I don't know if I, I mean, I can disagree for the hell of it, but um, I think the way I, I my, my first orientation to this is um, there's epistemics and there's aesthetics. So one, one way of looking at this is, uh, if you're speaking about justifying truth claims, you know, most people, you know, religious views evolve um, and people start off thinking the world was made in seven days and there was, you know, a snake and the Garden of Eden and whatever. Uh, and then over time, they're like, well, this is allegorical and this is uh, this is this is mythos and not history. And but then they'll insist on saying but this bit is actually history. Um, and we have. We think the evidence to show that at least it's possible that it was history and so forth. Um, but that sort of epistemic, what do you know and how do you know it? And is your worldview therefore justified? I'm never sure how fundamental that is. I think ultimately the, the religious outlook is more aesthetic in nature. And by that, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a feeling about the relationship to the reality. And it's one that's, that's related not so much just to what is true, but also what is felt to be beautiful and good. Mm. And so that we're getting into the deep philosophical thickets there, but that's how I'd begin to say that, but I, I'm not trying to collapse into a postmodern relativism of everything is equally true and equally justifiable. I think you're right that we have learned something about how to test truth claims. And what that would mean is fine, be Christian, but you can't possibly think that there was a virgin birth right for example mm -hmm. they'll say well mm, miracles and you'll say well do you really want miracles do we rely on miracles for your worldview and they're like mm, i'm not sure i'll think about it and that's how i that's how i see it i see it as a kind of tension yeah well uh, and it, and just to tie back in what you were referring to earlier with this rsa um project that you were working on in these groups right uh the whole the the fascinating and charles taylor i think uh gets it it's a lot of this stuff but this fascinating development of what we would think of as sort of um uh, public space, 
public space in general uh, as, as somehow being immune from or or free from a particular yeah. religious characterization, right? That there's somehow we're clearing that out and whatever we're going to do here, you can do that on your own. We've privatized yeah. religion, yeah, right? Pri- yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, but, but this was, I would say, arguably where a lot of that yearning starts to enter in because, okay, we might've cleared a space um, arguably to do purely public secular things that we can all agree on. And the basis for that, by the way, I think is that, um, right. Like science, the, the, the thinking goes is something that we can all agree on because it's empirical and we can all just sort of like, it, it needs to be inter intersubjectively verifiable or falsifiable, you know, and that sort of thing. And because of that, it provides us a solid ground on which to have a communal basis for establishing truth claims and fact claims and that sort of a thing. And so that's something that we can all kind of do together and buy into whether you believe in this God or that God, or you practice that, or you believe in that miracle, that's a personal thing because it doesn't fall into this sort of publicly accessible, epistemically grounded thing that we're calling, you know, secular, scientific, rational thought, mm-hmm. um, which seems to be, that was sort of like the social contract of public space. And, you know, right. and it kind of, uh, it was sort of a detente kind of worked for a while, right? But then mm-hmm. what it did is it sort of created that yearning of like, well, wait a second, this is a very hollow, bland, uh, form of public life if we can't come together around value and belief right. and all this right. stuff, right? And then it creates this real crisis of all of the most important things are somehow sucked out of public living and public expression, um, including the very ground of a of a of a functioning society, which are values. You know, what are our right. shared values? Right. And if you can no longer ground your values together, then you know, right. arguably so- this, yeah. So. That, again, is a very, I think, um, uh, that's the dynamic, I think, in which we find ourselves in where people are starting to both re-engage with spirituality, become more comfortable speaking about it. Um, and, and the fact that even over the course of 10 years that now dropping the G, the G bomb can become more kind of culturally uh, appropriate in some ways, I think is speaking to this fact that like, yeah, this isn't quite working, but we haven't quite figured out what else to do and so now we're all kind of piling on with our own views of this sort of thing so yeah 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 yeah. so i mean well this is the thing i mean spiritualize is i mean you know i can get you some hard copies to share with metabolism spirituality people because um it really was trying to make sense of that question like now what do we do um i suppose i was just trying to put a word in there for um you know not not to assume that we have a shared metaphysical set of assumptions that as you, so what, so to, to back up, I think what, I think it was Habermas who spoke about the, the breakdown of the value realms and modernity being a big mm-hmm. crisis in modernity, that truth, beauty, and goodness were somehow severed from each other. And um, that really matters because what you're describing as on the one hand, we can agree about this in the public realm and we have the publicly acceptable, intersubjectively ascertainable uh, truth claims that work for certain kinds of natural science, but not much else. Probably doesn't work even for psychology in most cases. Um, You have that and great, good luck to you, but that you can't build a society on that, right? You can create some tools and medicines and stuff and great, that will probably help, but it's no basis for a shared life of meaning and purpose worth living um 
But the question then is, is it just a matter of adding on to that? Or is it something about the very mentality that says you can separate that off from beauty and goodness dimensions? I don't know quite how one begins to answer that, but you do you do need to be careful in thinking that somehow you can sort out truth, beauty, and goodness as if they're separate things because they do mm-hmm. bleed into each other in various ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but coming back to the bigger question, what do we do? Um, so I, 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 I'm, this is right on what I'm wrestling with at the moment. So um, there's a part of me that would find life a lot easier if I could just sort of go to church, you know, uh, for example, and just say, yeah, it's mystery, mysterious, but maybe the resurrection story is true in some historical sense. Um, I can just about explain to myself how it, what it means for, what sin might mean, what what it would mean for Christ to die on the cross for us. I could give a metamodern spin to that that would be more or less compelling. But do I really believe it? And secondly, can I bring it to bear socially and culturally in the way that would bring others with me? There I'm less sure. At least I've yet to find the community or the church or the preacher to Mm. bring me that way. Mm. Uh, But, you know, there are... um, there are inspiring figures out there, metamodern Christian thinkers who are quite impressive. Um, but I'm also partly Hindu. My wife's Indian. Um, and I'm by sort of intellectual training, I'm a bit more Buddhist. And then I'm kind of skeptical by temperament. So it's it's a struggle. You know, it's like yeah. not easy to go back to sort of one way of seeing the world. And that's quite a metamodern predicament too, right? And it's I have friends who find that, Christian friends who find that a little frustrating. But also Christian friends who, frankly, are a bit beyond it and say, look, get over yourself. You just need to surrender to God. Um, and I, I'm not sure they're not right, you know. So Yeah, that's that's very fascinating to me. Um, I mean, I find so I'm I love Kierkegaard, and I find Kierkegaard to be a very kind of proto-metamodern thinker and and very much sort of a you could you could almost call him in some ways something of a metamodern uh, theologian because of that. But then, of course, once you start doing that, there's all sorts of metamodern theologians you could find. Nietzsche might right. even you know count for one. Um, but uh, but well, you name a lot of 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 um, realities that I think one. I think a lot of people are wrestling with. I think two, they get to the heart of a lot of the cultural ambivalence or cultural uncertainty that we're living through around uh, cultural values, cultural codes in conflict, the culture wars, et cetera, and how we adjudicate and negotiate these sorts of issues, uh, which, you know, I'm not trying to put you on the hot seat of like, what's the answer to our, you know, uh, our, our cultural crisis essentially that we're undergoing. Um, But for me hearing that you raise a couple of potential options that come up, right? Like one is the, uh, this is a kind of either non-rational or trans-rational thing that needs to be decided at, at some kind of uh, level where someone just consents or, or you know, defers to uh, sort of the Godhead and submits in some ways. I think in some ways Kierkegaard does take that kind of approach of embracing the absurd, right? Um, and I think that there's stuff you can say about that approach and there's there's problems to it as well. Um, I will also say that I do think that the world stands in need of metamodern theologians. 
Um, I think that there's a great value in taking traditions and updating them through the different kind of cultural codes as, as, as they change. And just as there's postmodern Christianity and, you know, modern and traditional Christianity, I think metamodern Christianity is sort of yeah. presumably on the horizon. And I think some people have already begun to speak to that sort of uh, thing. Um, at the same time, though, there's also this issue of really grappling with the pluralism of it all, right? Like, yeah. what does it mean to really grapple? I mean, you mentioned Hindu and Christian, but just like the whole milieu, the whole, sure. the whole, um, just, uh, yeah, the multi, uh, the many different religious traditions and, right. and, and perspectives that are out there, right? And is there some okay. meta theoretical thing that could somehow encapsulate that uh, is another kind of approach that you could take. So rather than having to choose a particular tradition and sort of either giving yourself to it or reinterpreting it, what if there's some kind of a broader lens that can kind of situate and contextualize kind of right. all forms of spirituality in some meaningful way? Um, and I, I find that to be a very compelling idea. So anyway, those are a couple of things that came up for me. I don't know if you have any thoughts. Well, it's quite a lot. I mean, there's a lot to discuss there. I mean, a few things come to mind. One is that that attempt to find you know, comparative religion, comparative religion plus, let's say, to include non-religious approaches as well. There are lots of people doing that. You know, it's um, in some ways as old as the hills. Um, I know that one of the organizations that supports Perspectiva, the Fetzer Institute, based in Kalamazoo in the US, and they're working on a project where they think love is the is the answer, basically. Love is the, is the idea that, although it's somewhat different in different traditions there is a, a sacred story that's ultimately about love that comes regardless of your tradition whether it's monotheistic polytheistic uh even if it's not particularly theistic um and it's not a bad claim there are some who think beauty is at the heart of reality and that ultimately that's the higher order concept we have to orient towards so i'm not i wouldn't give up on the idea of a kind of integrating um, you know, trying not to use the word meta, I'm on a meta diet, but, you know, some sort of meta pattern that um, can somehow transcend and include all of this delicious difference. But in terms of the, what I worry about there is a kind of stealth narcissism because what I think a lot of this is about is an unwillingness to surrender. And that's, I think quite a western to some extent modern maybe postmodern inclination um that i'm too i'm just too interesting to go to one tradition you know i'm just i have too many perspectives i've read too much i've lived in too many countries i can critique things um i see the flaws and the evidence that you know you can explain it away so easily that you're just too cool to commit to a tradition right mm. And I worry about that. I worry that's the devil, as it were, you know, the ego, at least, um, hmm. that is trying to say you were on the other hand, and this is, this is where, you, I don't know how much, I know you've spoken to Zach Stein, he's a good friend and kind of colleague of mine as well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he's doing a lot of work on the on what might be called metamodern metaphysics. And there, uh, with Mark Gaffney to some extent, and uh, there they have this view of what they call cosmoerotic humanism. It's a whole other story, but they have a 
a view of the evolution of love as being the primordial reality that's playing mm. itself out. What's interesting about their worldview vis-a-vis what I just said is they think the unique self story, the uniqueness of the individual is where the sacred is. Mm, mm-hmm. Sacred is ultimately finding your own place in the divine as a unique being, right? So there's a sense in which there is a kind of the flip side of narcissism is individuation, you could say. And that then to add another layer to this, just to kind of really get high, as you've mentioned before, metamodernism is partly about historical crisis. So whatever the spiritual or religious response, it has to grapple with a world of radical ecological, um, I hesitate to say catastrophe, but diminished ecological world that risks losing its own um, basis for renewal in the context of a kind of miasma of misinformation um, technology that's controlled by a kind of oligarchy um, breakdown in governance, bioprecarity, in other words, a, wo- a world that could conceivably fall apart um, and destroy itself, maybe through nuclear war ultimately, or some other way that we can't imagine. Um, so whatever whatever you bring into being, whatever this thing that you're talking about is, metamodern spirituality, it has to be, it has to honor the prior cultural codes, yes. I think it cannot foreclose a particular metaphysical view of the world. It cannot demand that you see things a certain way. Nonetheless, I think it has to commit to something other than a kind of um, lowest common denominator synthesis point. So I'm not sure love is enough or beauty is enough. Because, you know, after a certain point in time, you want to go and practice or be with people who see the world like you or who who give you the sustenance and succor you seek or inspiration you seek. Um, and so somehow you also have to be mobilized into action to to meet the demands of the historical moment as well. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what that is. So one, one, one further thought here is you can bring people together you know, in the name of spirituality, you, you know, there's a group, I have a good friend, Pippa Evans, who created something in the UK called Sunday Assembly that also went international to some extent. And I think that was actually quite, in cultural code terms, quite postmodern in the sense that it was bring yourself, have fun, sing along. Uh, I think they had a tagline, um, live better, help often, wonder more. But if you think each of them are very non-specific, they're not really commitments. Uh, it did manifest in real charity work and, you know, it's alive and well in a certain sense. But I think it's it's postmodernity is kind of its undoing in that it doesn't really commit to a substantive view of the world. So another piece of language there is that it's it lacks a cataphatic image, mm. you know, it lacks the kind of rallying cry. And this is, again, we're going a bit too fast in some ways, but you may know Zach's meta psychology, like it lacks the symbol. Plenty of images, plenty of text, but what's the symbol that will actually, you know, will it be something Baha'i-like or the equivalent of Esperanto for the religious world? I don't think it's that, right? Um, yeah. Somehow it, it's it's something more like the conversation you see between Thomas Merchant and Thich Nhat Hanh or the, the, the kind of metamodern spirituality is one that is, and here's the one last reference and I'll shut up. 
Ian McGilchrist, we published his recent book, The Matter of Things. He he has a something I think of as the McGilchrist maneuver, although it's used by other people, but he uses it kind of a lot. And basically, it's a shift not just from either or to both and, but a shift from either or to both and that includes either or. So what that means in practice is it's not that you say either you're Christian or Hindu, you know, go to the temple or go to the church. You know, it's kind of one way. Nor is it saying both turn up, you know, we'll pray to, you know, Hanuman and Krishna. We'll sing your kirtan songs. We'll light the incense. We'll have prasadam. And we'll also read the Bible and and say the Lord's Prayer. No, that's also not going to work. It's going to offend a lot of people. It desacralizes in a certain sense. It's not going to work. Um. But somehow you have to become bilingual so that, in effect, you follow your own tradition wholeheartedly with full awareness of all of its contingencies and contested issues and metaphysical speculation and whatever else. You follow that wholeheartedly, surrender yourself to it, but you also have the capacity to live wholeheartedly in the other world, the world that is all of the other traditions and the other ways of being and you recognize them ultimately as part of the same world that's the kind of metamorphic spirituality i think we have to get to it's a kind of both and either or composite where you commit you make your either or commitment but it's in this both and context it's both either or and both and as i think i've i've heard someone put that sensibility before um yeah, right, right, right. I, I like, I like, I mean, everything you just said, I, I, it resonates a lot. It brings up a lot for me. Um, just most immediately, this notion of bilingualism as a metaphor for trafficking in the plurality of, 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 you know, spiritual um, habitations. Um, because uh, one of the things about, one way that I conceive of this meta modern sensibility and the, the perspective that it brings on things is that meta perspective. It's the perspective on perspectives. It's the perspective of having a perspective. Um, so when you're bilingual, um, you know, Goethe said that uh, einmal ist keinmal when it comes to languages, like to have one is to have none. You need to have multiple languages to begin to understand language because you need to do that comparative thing. And uh, I think that there might be some similar thing that you could consider about religion or spirituality as well, that in order to really get what is spirituality, you can't just have, you can't just be swimming, you know, in the fishbowl right. of right. your own, you know, experience. And so, yeah. so there's that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, just to say that's kind of what happened to me in the spirituality project. Mm. It was, it was, I, I rediscovered my Christian roots in a way. Like I, I began it thinking, Christianity is kind of embarrassing. Um, but by the end of it, I was like embarrassed by my own lack of familiarity with my own tradition mm. uh, and saw that it, it, the caricature that I thought it was, it was at all. Um, but that didn't make me a Christian as such. But it did mean that I saw spirituality differently. You know, I saw that there's mm. a need to commit mm. to something um, and not just to get high on groovy emotions all the time. You know, it's um... well, but and that's another area where I think that that perspective comes in to play because you can be aware of the need to submit or 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 commit, um, right? I mean, it's one thing to be 
and maybe this almost becomes, uh, you know, just, just sort of lost in the ether of abstraction or something. But like, I do think that there's a difference between someone who sees the theophany, right. And then bows down and worships versus sort of someone who deals with the plurality and the possibility, you know, and knows of all the, the, the ways that they could be, but then kind of chooses to commit, right. And says, I am aware of the need to submit myself to something. And I feel like that's a different kind of submission right. than just being sort of overwhelmed uh, as it were. It's, um, and so it, right. that's a, another, I it, think it, potentially. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, sorry. That, yeah. To be honest, that, that's the, of all the ones that, that, that was kind of what I was trying to describe, but you put it really well there. And I think that is kind of where I think we need to get to. It's um, and it's interesting to think what's really going on there, because you've got this kind of cultural context where explosion of information, you know, twenty first century globalization, uh, internet age, sort of meta modern structural conditions, time between worlds, um, beginning to reassimilate prior cultural codes to see them for the partial truths that they were. Um, feeling these combinations of pragmatic idealism and sincere irony and whatever else, serious play. And um, and then what now? How to live a serious life? How to actually live the fullest life you can, making direct contact with reality um, in the sort of original sense of Eros? How do you sort of do that? And I think you can't do that by just flirting with all the possibilities right uh how interesting this is and here's how they light the lamp in this ceremony and you know here's what they do in the the coptic church or whatever no you need to make the commitment the full knowledge that it wasn't the only commitment you could make maybe mm -hmm. um, however this is where i have a quite little bit of an eyebrow raise you know, we don't know the fact of the matter at some level, the ultimate mystery, we don't really know. And and uh, this is where I'm a little bit confused by the idea of post-metaphysical spirituality, which maybe you can explain to me better. But I, um, you know, if it is the case that there is something like a divine being, now whether you want that to be a kind of Christian monotheistic God, or whether it's something more panentheistic, um in god is sort of in everything but not equivalent to everything um if there is a reality of that nature ontologically and cosmologically right how does it play out psychologically and sociologically because then you're actually not in touch with reality if you're just flirting around you sort of your job is to align and find and attune yourself to this pre-existing being or beings or whatever there is a then a different kind of game in town it's to to realize reality is not what you thought it was that you're not at the center of it you're not your own origin there you come from something else and there how do you get back home to that thing yeah i i agree with that at the same time you could also look at it more like well let's say that there's a, a electromagnetic field right um that's the reality but then different cultures and species can relate to that field in different ways i mean you can yeah. get bioluminescence and you can get you know the electrical light bulb and all this stuff right and you're learning something about that deep ground right that that field in all of its instantiations and right. so there's also a way in which the pluralism can be efficacious in that manner of that it speaks to it's and 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 
arguably, if the transcendent is, you know, just um, super abundantly meaningful, profound, beyond conceptualization, then the only way we can even begin to relate to it is through its kind of instantiations that are never the full thing. So right. I go yeah. with you that. But yeah, so I, I like that. But I want to add one thing, which comes back to the issue about the, the, the ego remaining sovereign, and the, the problem of that. So okay, let's imagine that people can agree, you don't have to get everyone to agree, that's often a mistake. But Let's imagine that people can agree that life is mysterious uh, and that it's not self-evident what consciousness is, for example, and it's not self-evident the nature of values, where they come from. Uh, there's many things in life that we can't adequately explain, but it's not just that. It's that we, we need a, a story to make sense of everything from the Big Bang to the formation of stars mm. to the fragility of life on earth to the human lifespan to the emotions we feel etc etc and let's imagine you can get a critical mass of people to agree in the great mystery right and the great mystery there's a certain amount of variation in how people see it and there will be still be some hardcore atheists who say it's all bullshit but basically even if you can get that critical mass of people you say look some of them will be born in india and more likely to be hindu some will be born in the middle east more likely to be muslim some will be Jewish, some will be Christian, etc. And you're saying, look, uh, that's okay, because there's one reality, many paths, and that's that's comparative religion 101 at some level, and that's okay. In fact, it's a bit deeper than that, because it's all you could ever have, and it's foolish to ask for more at some level. It's like, don't look for the one path, except that there's the nature of God will be such that there will ne inevitably be many paths, that somehow the plurality is part of the beauty. and that kind of. So one last thought, because let's assume all of that more or less stands up. Then what I worry about is paradoxically choice. I worry that we're choosing it rather than, because that's still a kind of sovereign egoic act. And that makes me nervous, actually. I wonder, I, I would rather it was chosen, you know, that it, that it was somehow revealed, I suppose, in the in the old classical sense of revelation, uh, and that we didn't feel we had a choice, that we were sort of pulled into this calling, because then it would be more like the real thing. And I suppose what often happens is a bit of both. People have this faith and doubt, and they're like, yes, I feel called, and I sort of believe, but I don't exactly, and yeah, yeah, that's rich. So um, uh, my responses or some initial thoughts that come up around that sort of stuff is a couple things. Uh, and they actually, it's interesting. A lot of the stuff starts to tie together, which is becomes enjoyable as well. Um, I'm not sure where to start, but let's take the revelation versus sovereign egoic choice sort of a thing. I actually view the sovereign egoic choice element of this to be really crucial. I right. think that that is one of the distinguishing markers of a um let's just call it meta modern but you could use other terms uh uh spiritual commitment because it's it is um it is coming from a level that isn't coerced right it's it's not it's not forced it is it is an act of will and i think i mean you could start to philosophize about the importance of the will in making these sorts of things and people like kierkegaard and some of the existentialists did uh but without going into all that i do think that it's really crucial 
to acknowledge the the plurality that leads to the act of will rather than uh you know conviction conviction right. you know is like you're overpowered you, you you're right. convinced you're just you have to do it one plus one equals two there's no choice right. but right. when it comes to these matters of value it's precisely the choice that leads okay. to to free will i, I um, get it yeah so and, i what, sorry go ahead go ahead well well all right. So just to wrap this up, a couple things. So there's that element, which I think is important. Um, and that ties in, I think, to this issue of the narcissism question and around individuation, because, again, that's another thing that I, I see as being the forward advance of a of a of a religious sensibility is the degree to which you can have the development of self that doesn't just become sort of narrowly egoic in kind of that that modern individual, you know, I am a self and I'm an enclosed, you know, buffered being and all that stuff. But a sense of the, the true richness of the self comes into being um, in a way that you can see being more submerged in traditional mm-hmm. notions of, of religion of like, I totally submit my, my own individual self to the Godhead. I, I lose all individual aspects and personality and I become subsumed in the ultimate. Right. I feel like um, one thing that meta modern spirituality coming out of the richness and the variegation of, of, of modernity and then post-modernity is that there's an, a deepening richness of the self um, it transcends, I think, the limited egoic quality of the modern self. It, it transcends right. the superficial uh, dancing around options, narcissistic kind of buffet style spirituality self. And it right. is this sort of like full, rich, choosing, affirmative, committing self, which is again right. more like Kierkegaardian self. And, and, then, and then that, I think, is the place from which you engage in the in the symbol in the creating of the symbol in the in the relating to the symbol because that is 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 the that's the that's where the plurality begins to become really um i keep using the word rich but uh there's a there's a there's a depth to the pluralism at that point it's it's not just that you can hop around these different options it's that actually like each at the, at a certain level each individual soul has a profound contribution to make to the the wholeness of whatever this transcendent thing right. is right. and that that i think can be a very powerful idea so there there are a bunch of yeah interacting yeah. notions there oh, i like it i i really like the way you describe that and it makes a lot of sense i mean it, it occurred to me while you were speaking that when talking of will and i was speaking about surrender weirdly you know the statement i surrender is an act of will right which makes it a kind of paradoxical and therefore potentially better mm. you know a kind of phenomenon it's um it's something about the choice to surrender that paradoxically places you both, you know, as a, as a as a choice maker, but also a kind of freely choosing to give your some of your choice making capacity away. Um, but I hear you that also the kind of self that chooses, that is non naive, experienced, non coerce, not not doing it as some sort of identity showmanship but because it's the full expression of who you are to commit to this other thing, then it does become, have its own kind of beauty. I agree. Um, I've often, I mean, and I can see how that could happen in one's life that you get to a point where you sort of say, I've lived, lived enough to know that now I have to commit to this thing, but you do it knowing that it could have been otherwise you did have a choice. 
Um, well, and, and that's where we want to get to, I think. Yeah. And, and yeah. not only that, to know that it could have been otherwise and yet still to choose to affirm that what you chose is the only way it could have been, if, if that, that makes seems, sense. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of, it makes sense in the mystical sense, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about, I suppose, is, you know, I'm thinking of uh, Jeffrey Kripal's work a little bit, but just generally the the sense that that reality might just be so very different from how we assume it to be. And that there might be these other beings in some kind of other dimension that we can't access. And that some occult phenomenon might be true and that God knows there might be UFOs and you know, who knows, even astrology might have some validity, like all sorts of things. And I don't mean that as some kind of hand-waving who knows what's going yeah, on. No, I know. I, I mean something more like I'm at a stage of life where having looked at these things in some with some care and experienced many of them, I can't honestly say I know um, what the fabric of reality is like. It remains a big conundrum. And I suspect it probably always will. But I also know that the kind of person who wakes up in the morning and does an I Ching reading to figure out how to live their day is quite different from the one who puts on the lab coat and goes in to do, you know, do an experiment. Um, and their spirituality is unlikely to be the same. Um, so somehow the metamodern spirituality you're alluding to, um, what is it? What does it have then? It has as a something about individuation in there um but maybe a, i sometimes speak about collective individuation and i do that to distinguish it from just the kind of individual by themselves but rather in the historical moment they individuate in order to relate and and, and serve the sort of time they're in there's something about individuation or collective individuation something about epistemic plurality and knowing that there are multiple ways of knowing something about ontological plurality and knowing there are multiple visions of what is real something about metaphysical imagination and then something about a dignified relationship to what's gone before that's non-naive non and non-coerced such that you can live all of that wholeheartedly and fully and fry through it saturated by it and know that some of it is more, in some sense, more real than the rest of it. But you might never know which part is which. And the whole of it has its own reality that you have to live. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, no, I really. think that's beautiful. That's a beautiful summary. And I, I guess maybe to sum that up, there's a there's a epistemic humility that's attached to it all as well right. when you're confronted by that plurality. And I think maybe one way to kind of summarize all that down is that th there's you know, the march, the continual advance of self-reflection or just reflection in general, but at a mystical level, if you're thinking about reflection, you're reflecting on yourself and the self as a whole and all this stuff. But it, there's this continual reflective and then reflection on reflection. There's this accretion of reflection that occurs through culture and we become more aware of the world and ourselves and our relationship of things. And that challenges and problematizes all forms of naivete, which I think is where a lot of our, th these sorts of sensibilities around surrender and, um, and giving in and right, because as long as you're meta aware of something, there's part of you that's holding on to this kind of belief in your own metacognitive awareness of something and you haven't really fully 
participated or, or, or given yourself over to something. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is that, well, I do believe that that is kind of always continuing and we're always kind of reaching higher and higher vantages. And we're able to look down more and more and say, Oh, that relates to that. And now I can see that that's how that works and blah, blah, blah. Um, at the same time, there also always remains that stuff above you that you still can't see. There's always still the mystery ahead. Right. And I think that maybe that might be where you retain that sense of true, genuine, ultimate surrender um, of just, yeah, we'll never know everything. Right. And, and, and the very nature of an evolving, changing, developing universe is such that that will always be the case. And so on a, a part of me is like trying to articulate that a metamodern spirituality, I feel like is trying to engage at the highest level vantage possible in terms of reality and still find that profound, spiritual, meaningful, existentially significant, vibrant, flourishing perspective. Mm. On the other hand, whatever that topmost vantage is, there's untold layers of mystery above it. And before that, you know, you can only bow and worship and sort of submit. So, you know, there's that element of it, of it as well. Um, mm. But um, I'm tempted to say that we should probably conclude our conversation soonish. I usually try to do about an hour and 15 and, uh, and I think that we're at about that point. Um, fine, I've lost track of time. Where are we? Okay. Yeah, fine. So, <laughs> but I mean, obviously we could keep going. There's so much, this is, this has been great and very rich and um, I'd love to continue exploring. I always <laughs> say this to everyone. It's always just like, there's, there's so much here, but um, yeah, yeah, we can always revisit. It's always good to be left wanting more at some level. So um, yeah, I, uh, well, do you have any 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 closing thoughts or anything you want to you know f feel like things you didn't felt like we didn't um, touch on? I suppose or... uh, no, only that. Insofar as people are interested, um, I know you've written and spoken about metamodernism, and you've mentioned kindly the book Dispatches. Inside that book, there's a preface where I speak about my own grappling with metamodernism and how it you know it kind of crept up on me at some level, and I had to make sense of what it meant. And that essay is freely available online for those. I hope you'll buy the book, first of all, Dispatches from a Time Between Worlds, Volume 1, Crisis and Emergence in Metamodernity. But the, the preface to that is called Metamodernism and the Perception of Context, uh, the cultural between the political after and the mystic beyond. And that's an essay I wrote to make sense of metamodernism, and that's freely available as an essay online. Um and just that, yeah, it's it's a really interesting brew to combine metamodernism and spirituality because I think a lot of the critiques of spirituality are actually postmodern critiques. They see it as a, it's weird, it's a kind of modernist, a lot of the kind of, you know, spiritual, spiritual not religious uh, discomfort that people have uh, is that it's, it's, it's seen as a postmodern antidote to a modern problem. Uh, or a traditional problem potentially as well, but it's seen with, as a problem because it's postmodern. You know, it's kind of like you want your cake and eat it. You you get lost in um, the lack of ethical commitment at the heart of it, a lack of uh, a kind of commitment to reality at the heart of it. Um, but I think the reason this conversation I hadn't realized before we had it that what I was doing back then was you know unknowingly trying to build a metamodern spirituality. So I'm glad that you're focusing on that fully. I suppose Perspectiva is also doing that uh, in a different, yeah. more oblique way. Um, we speak of systems, souls, and society, and that's a way of 
getting at the need to integrate different forms of knowledge, particularly in this historical moment. Because yeah. many feel that the answer to the problems of our time are in some sense spiritual. Mm -hmm. But good luck explaining what that means, right? That's the <laughs> well, that's, that's I agree. I mean, and in reading your work, uh, I see that very much. Um, you know, I, I feel like spirituality, how do I put it? One, spirituality seems to be at the core of a host of different um, responses to the meta crisis in terms of, of this, this thing we need to, we need to pay attention to this. We need to integrate this. We need to use this. We need to move forward with this. Um, I see that across the board, uh, of different thinkers that you could call meta modern. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I think that that, it, that's a ubiquitous element to it. Um, I think you're exactly right too, about that. There's this holdover this um kind of hangover from the postmodern buffet style approach that is very narcissistic and that is very kind of selective and i think people are waking up to the limitations of that in a very big way and so yeah. broadly speaking the awareness of the limitations of that postmodern approach to spirituality including trying to use spirituality as just the panacea for all of our problems and it doesn't matter what kind of spirituality or this or that right um I think that there's a growing awakening to to the limitations and the and the problematic nature of that. And so whatever it is that comes next needs to be something deeper, more grounded, more rooted, more committed, right? Um, and so whatever I think metamodern spirituality evolves into, it will be many pronged. It'll have elements that make a family resemblance, but it'll also be anything from just a full-fledged meta-aware commitment to surrendering to the Godhead, to a, a creation of a new religion, to, you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. Well, I mean, one last question we don't have to answer, but mm. it occurs to me just in the, the wordsmith in me is seeing the words and wondering about it. So meta-modern spirituality, right? I, as I say, prefer to speak in terms of spirit rather than spirituality in terms of spiritual sensibility. So for me, that translates as metamodern spiritual sensibility. But then I think, hang on, do you need even need the middle word? Like, is it possible that the metamodern sensibility is inherently spiritual in that the kinds of qualities that metamodernism brings with it lead one to that kind of relationship to reality? It's already got an aesthetic. It, it's about mixed feelings at some level. It, it has a certain kind of ethical commitment baked into it. It's very much looking, reckoning with the historical moment. Uh, it's informed by tradition, informed by modernity, form of postmodernity. So it might be that, you know, while I, I don't say you have to change your podcast title or anything, but I wonder if the word spiritual is already sort of priced in or baked in yeah. uh, to the very idea of being metamodern. I think that that's a, a very good insight. And I would, I would, I'm inclined to agree with you. Um, uh, so, but yeah. Okay, well, that's that's a good place to end then. I mean, but I think it's fine to use it as a sort of reiteration of the point. Sure, sure. Uh, well, so. well, this was great. I really enjoyed this so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and having these conversations. And um, I appreciate the work that you're doing. Um, I mean, across the board, you really are prolific in the things that you're engaged in, both at a at a at a. Uh, um, authorial level, but also at an administrative level and just all the stuff that you're doing is, um, you know, it's, uh, it's really important and crucial stuff. And, uh, I will make one last plug for the book, which again is, I think one of the most, uh, yeah, important, um, texts out there on metamodernism and metamodernity. So I encourage that. 
Um, but hey, Jonathan Rousen, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks for those kind words as well. It means a lot to me. And uh, I really enjoyed it too. Look forward to hearing what others think as well. Cool. Thanks a lot. Take care.